So we're um, reading from Mark 13, verses 1 to 13. Let's hear God's word. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will all these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and he will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in synagogues. On account of me, You will stand before governors and kings as witness to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, please uh, do have your Bible open in front of you. At Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. This is the next part of uh, your series as you're going through the book of Mark. Now, uh, recently, Justine and I went to Paris. And we were only there for a couple of days. But while we were there, we went to visit the Eiffel Tower. And we didn't end up going up. Uh, They've put the prices up since we last went. Um, But just stood at the bottom of this enormous enormous tower. We found ourselves just looking up and thinking, wow, what a structure, what a building. That's not the the tallest building I've ever been to, though. Uh, As a teenager, uh, my parents took us on a, a big family holiday to New York. Uh, And we got to go up the Empire State Building uh, and stood at the top of this incredible building. My my dad stood as far away from the edge as he possibly could, but the rest of us, we all got right to the edge. And we were looking over, looking over the edge, looking out across the New York skyline, thinking, wow, what a building. Now, for the people of Jesus' day, Their version of the Empire State Building or the Eiffel Tower 
was the temple in Jerusalem. This was an incredible building. It was over 450 metres long. It was around 300 metres wide and about 30 metres tall. That means that, to put it into perspective, that's about four times the length of Buckingham Palace. It's three times as deep as Buckingham Palace and about five metres taller. Except this building was made around 2,000 years before Buckingham Palace was even thought of. So this is an incredible building. This temple was amazing. But not only was this a huge building, but the stones that they used to make this were massive as well. One of the biggest stones that was used was thought to be about 500 tons. That's massive. It was about 13 metres long, 3 metres tall, and about 3 metres deep. And that's bigger than any of the stones that you'd find at Stonehenge. It's massive. You can see pictures online of people stood next to this massive stone that's still there. And they look tiny in comparison. So you can see, can't you, why in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, just as Jesus is leaving the temple, he's leaving this massive building, one of his followers... I'm not surprised that they might say, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. This disciple is right. This building was huge, was magnificent. The stones are massive. But that's not the only reason why this building was special. You see, the temple was the centre of all Jewish religious life. It was the hub of everything. You couldn't really be a proper Jew if you hadn't been to the temple. This is where the sacrifices were made. This is where the rituals were performed. This is where they had to go to pay their tithes. This is where they could be blessed by the priests. For them, the temple was everything. So you can imagine, can't you, their shock as Jesus replies to this disciple in verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Can you imagine for a moment the terror and the shock that I would cause if I left a tour of the Houses of Parliament and said to my friend as we were walking out the door, you see this building? It's going to collapse in a few days. (laughs) The people around would be terrified of what I was about to do to this building. Others would think I was just crazy and I was talking nonsense. Others would think I just really hated politics. Well, Jesus He's not a terrorist. He's not crazy, talking nonsense. And he doesn't hate the temple. Instead, Jesus is doing two things. Jesus is making 
an actual prophecy about the destruction of the temple and he is teaching us a lesson about how everything in this life is temporary. You see, Jesus' prediction that this incredible building would be wiped out came true when in AD 70, Emperor Nero, uh, the Roman emperor, he sent an army to stamp out a rebellion and they swept through the city of Jerusalem and they did their best to destroy everything in sight. So as Jesus says these words in Mark 13, verse 2, he is telling them what is going to happen 40 years before it actually happened. That's amazing, isn't it? Only someone who is a true prophet could do that. But, but not only that, as Jesus prophesies that this temple is going to be destroyed, it is a lesson to these people, and it's a lesson to us as well, that things don't last forever. As I was staring up at that Eiffel Tower a few weeks ago, and, and as I looked across that New York skyline as a, te- a teenager, there is a sense in which we just assume this will be here forever. We don't even question it, do we? We just live our lives like this building. It's going to be here forever. My home, when I go back there, it's, it's always going to be there. We treat things as if they are going to last forever. This world, we think it's just going to keep going and going and going. We live as if this life is eternal. But Jesus says, you see these buildings, you see this massive building, it's coming down soon. Life is going to change completely. Jesus teaches us that things don't last. This life has an end. This world has an expiry date. And we need to be ready for when it does. Not one stone will be left on another. Now, that was as they were walking out of the temple. Having left the temple, Jesus goes over to the Mount of Olives. And he sits down on the mountain. Maybe he gets out a picnic and they sit down there with his disciples and he's looking back across the city and as he's looking across the city the temple is right there in in the center of their view and as they're sat there some of Jesus' disciples come up to him and they ask the question that everyone is thinking when when is this all going to happen Jesus When is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? When is the world going to come to an end? 1844? Well, Jesus never said that. There was a preacher called William Miller. He said that, and he was wrong. 1975? Jesus never said that either. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they said that, and they were wrong. 2021? Well, Jesus never said that. A man called F. Kenton Beeshaw, 
And he said that. I really want to make a pun. He can't be sure. <laughs> but no, he doesn't know, does he? He doesn't know. He's probably wrong. But who knows? The point is this. Jesus does not tell us when. He doesn't give us here a date for when to expect either the destruction of the temple or the end of the world. Now, people can often read these verses and they can think there's some sort of secret message about when the world is going to end. And many people try and link this passage up with the book of Revelation and, and they, they try and figure some sort of thing out with the, the millennium and all of that stuff. But when they do that, they're actually distorting this passage and they're reading something into it that in reality isn't there. Jesus does not tell us when the end will come. Instead, he answers three better questions. He's more interested in what will happen between now and the end. What's going to happen? He's more interested in what should we do while we wait for the end to come. And he's more interested in what will happen when the end does come. That's what he wants to talk about. And so those three questions are what we're going to try and uh, think about a little bit more this morning as we work through the rest of this passage. What will happen between now and the end? Well, in a word, chaos. What should we do while we wait for the end? Put simply, stand firm. What will happen when we get to the end? If you are a Christian, you will be saved. So that's where we're going for the rest of our time this morning. Let's think firstly then about that first question. What will happen between now, in terms of the passage, Jesus' time and the end? The picture that Jesus paints in these verses for us is quite a bleak one. I've summarized it into that word chaos, but in reality what Jesus describes here is catastrophic, affecting every area of human life. He says, first of all, that there is going to be religious confusion. This is from verse 6. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. Jesus says that in these last days, between his first coming and his second coming, that there will be loads of people coming to claim that they know the way to get to heaven. Different people, all saying that they have the truth. People even claiming that they are the returning Jesus. And worse than that, there'll be some people who actually believe it. These false teachers will deceive many. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because in 571 AD, there was a man who was born who grew up to to claim that he was God's messenger, the last and the greatest prophet, bringing true religion. And many were deceived into following the teachings of Islam. 
1805, there was a man who went on to claim that he'd found some golden plates containing a secret message about how Jesus had visited America. And many people were deceived into following the teachings of Mormonism. In 1852, there was a man who went on to claim to have found the truth that Jesus wasn't really God. And many people were deceived into following the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses. I could go on. So many different religions. So many claiming to have the truth. So many coming in the name of Jesus and in in the name of true religion. It is exactly as Jesus said it would be. There is religious confusion. But not only that, he says there will be national conflict. This is from verse 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus says that between his time and the end of time, people won't just be competing on a religious level, they will do it on a national level as well. Nations will fight against each other for supremacy. They'll start wars with each other. They'll threaten each other. They'll drop bombs on each other. They'll build nuclear programs to try and intimidate one another. Now that sounds familiar too, doesn't it? I went on Wikipedia to try and find some examples of of wars to give you examples of how this has happened in history. Uh, And I found this section that said, list of wars by date. That would be perfect. I can just pick some from history. It turns out that this page, list of wars by date, is actually just a list of links to other pages that say, list of wars by date from 1000 to 1499 AD. Uh, List of wars from 1990 to 2002. There have been so many wars since Jesus' time and now that they can't even fit on one Wikipedia page. They've got to break it down into sections. War after war after war. Nations around the world fighting against each other with, with the neighboring nations just over a piece of land. Superpowers jockeying for position to be the greatest of them all. It is exactly as Jesus said it would be. And the final thing that Jesus says is that there will be humanitarian crises. This is from verse 8. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. So Christ's description of the time before the end, the time before his return, includes all sorts of natural disasters all around the world. Earthquakes, tsunamis, famines, drought, forest fires, floods, tornadoes, hurricanes. Doesn't that sound familiar as well? We can barely get through a week without hearing about the latest natural disaster from different parts around the globe. Can you see then that Jesus' prophecies 
about what would happen between his lifetime and the end of time were absolutely spot on. He gets it exactly right. You you read what he says here and then you look at the world around you and you're left thinking, how did he know that? How did he know that this is what it was going to be like? How did he know? Well, he's God. He knows all things from beginning to end. That's how he knows. Now, as you, as you listen to Jesus' words, there's a temptation that many people fall into, which is to read too much into what Jesus is saying. To, to kind of read the newspaper, to look on BBC News, to do all of these things, and then to read those things back into what Jesus is saying. And so you get the latest report of a war, and you go, oh, look, wars, wars, Jesus is coming soon. Or, or you get the nat- latest report of the spread of Islam, and you go, look, look, deceiving many, Jesus is coming soon. Or, or you hear about a, another earthquake in Indonesia, and you go, look, earthquakes in various places, Jesus is coming soon. While that is true, Jesus is coming back, and he may come very soon. Jesus never says that these events mean his return is imminent. Remember, Jesus is not answering the question, when? He's saying what life will be like between now and then. In verse 7, he makes it very clear. He says, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. So, as you look at these verses, Jesus is not giving us clues of when he's going to return. Instead, it is describing for us what life will be like between now and then. So so as you read this, don't try and figure out some sort of riddle that is not there. Instead, trust in Jesus. Because this is the God-man who tells us what will happen way in advance of it actually happening. There's one more thing that we need to notice about this chaos, which is that this chaos can be personal. This is from verse 9 and verse 12. You must be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues on account of me. You will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And then verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child. Children will rebel against parents and have them put to death. You see, all of these other events that we've been talking about, so far they've kind of been out there. that The world around us is falling apart. But Jesus says, actually, you may well get caught up in all of this. Because if in all of the chaos you hold on to the teachings of Jesus, people probably won't like you very much. In all of the religious confusion, loads of different options, if you say Jesus is the only way, they're not going to like that. In all of the national conflict where nations are trying to compete to be the best, 
If you say that God is the only true power and authority, they're not going to like that very much. In all of the humanitarian crises where people are suffering all around the world, if you say that there is a good God in heaven who will one day make everything right and wipe away every tear, probably won't like that very much. Standing with Jesus in the chaos means that we might be dismissed, disliked, rejected, hated, for some people betrayed, some people even put in prison, tortured, possibly even killed. For some people around the world, they face the worst of that, don't they? But even in this country, there are Christians who know the difficulties that Jesus is describing here. Now, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you might be thinking, Dan, you're not really selling this to me. I know I'm not. To be honest, I'm not trying to sell it to you. You need to know that Christianity isn't a walk in the park. I don't think that you should become a Christian because it's a nice and easy lifestyle. No, I think that you should become a Christian because it's true. Because Jesus has proved himself trustworthy. Sure, if you don't become a Christian, if you don't believe any of this, your life in the here and now might be a little bit easier, but your eternity will be un bearable. And so Jesus himself says elsewhere that if you're going to follow him, you need to count the cost of being his disciple. And that cost is standing for the truth in the midst of a chaotic world. So what happens between Jesus' time and the end of time? In a word, chaos. So then the second question, what should we do while we, while we wait for the end? As we look to this day when the world is going to kind of come to a close, what are we supposed to just do in the meantime? Are we meant to just like hunker down, stick your head in the sand, just ride out the storm? No, Jesus says we must stand firm. He says it in three different ways in this passage. Listen to how he says it. Verse 5, watch out that no one deceives you. Verse 9, you must be on your guard. Verse 13, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. I think we can kind of summarize that into Three words, all beginning with the letter D, so it's nice and easy to remember. Discernment, defense, and determination. Discernment, defense, determination. Christ tells us that in the midst of all of the chaos going on around us, we need to be discerning. Verse 5, watch out that no one deceives you. So with all of these different people claiming that they have been sent from God, all of these different ideas floating around... We need to know the difference between 
what is true and a lie. Don't allow yourself to be tricked into believing something that is a fraud. So test, test whatever you hear. Test even what I am telling you this morning. Cross-check it with your Bible. Make sure that what you are hearing matches up with what Jesus says. Be discerning. But then Jesus also tells us that in all of the chaos, we need to be ready in defense. Verse 9, you must be on your guard. I can't hear that phrase, on your guard, without thinking of a fencer. Not a fencer like someone who makes fences, a fencer like the sport. Okay? And, and they're there with their white suit on, their, their, kind of their armor, kind of, and that funny mask with the netting. And they're in that pose, aren't they? They're ready. And as they get ready, they're on guard. That's the phrase, isn't it? Now, it's a bit of a tenuous link. But actually, I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about what Jesus is saying here. I've never fenced in my life, but even I know that that phrase, on guard, it is like an instruction to take your position, ready, prepared, prepared for the fight. That's exactly what Jesus is telling us here. He is saying, you're about to get caught up in all of this chaos, be ready, take your position, make sure you've got your armor on for this battle. Brace yourself for what is coming your way. Be ready in defense. And then Jesus also tells us that we need, uh, Jesus also tells us that in order to make it through, sorry, we need some determination. Verse 11, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. With all of the chaos that's going on around, it would be so easy, wouldn't it? be so easy to kind of let things slide a little bit. Just to allow things to slip, kind of to make compromises in order to make our lives a bit easier, to, to adapt and to change what we believe so that people don't find it so offensive. But Christ says, stand firm. Stay true to what you believe. Be rooted and established in the faith. Remain steadfast, unmovable, unshakable, unerring. Discernment, defense, determination. Does that sound like hard work? Does that sound like it's a bit too much for you? Yeah, me too. But in all of this, in all of this, Jesus gives us some amazing encouragement. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So if you're going to stand firm until the end, in the face of everything that this world is going to throw at you, you cannot do it alone. It is not possible for you to stand firm in your own strength. 
As, we're going, as we were going through a moment ago, looking at the, the religious confusion, the, the national conflict, all of those humanitarian crises, I was getting more and more disheartened. And I can, we get that, don't we? Because these things are too big for us. I can't handle national conflict. There's nothing I can do about that. I can't really make much difference to humanitarian crises. I can't sort out all of the religious confusion. If I was arrested and I was put on trial for my faith, I would have no idea what to say. The lawyers would tie me up in knots. But our God is bigger. Our God is greater. Our God is wiser than anything this world could throw at us. And in verse 11, Jesus tells us, as we're doing our best to stand firm, God himself, in the form of his Holy Spirit, is right there with us. He is at work in us. So maybe this morning you're here and you're losing heart in your walk with God. Maybe you've been finding things hard and you're thinking, I can't keep doing this alone. You're not alone. The Holy Spirit is with you. And there'll be times when you have a strength that hasn't come from you. Maybe the courage to speak up for the faith in a situation that you'd find really difficult. And you think, where did that come from? I never expected to say that. Jesus says, that wasn't you. That was me giving you the strength by my spirit. What an encouragement. What an encouragement to know that God himself is with us in the chaos of this world. Now, as as we've been thinking about this question of what we're going to do between now and the end, so far, all of the answers that we've seen are kind of on the defensive. Watch out. Be on your guard. Stand firm. But there's more to it than that. Because Jesus doesn't just want us to kind of hold on until he returns. He doesn't want us to be on the back foot for the rest of our lives. No, he gives us a job to do in the meantime. Listen to verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. So, As Jesus is telling us what we need to do while we wait for his return, he doesn't just envisage us kind of huddling together, standing firm. He's not expecting us to be hidden away, but never compromising. He doesn't want us to always discern the truth, but never tell anyone about it. No, he says, you've got a message. This message that you have, this message about the God of creation stepping down into our world, dying on a cross so that we could be washed and freed from all of our sin, that message needs to be shared. We need to tell other people about this. In his death, Christ is extending an invitation to the whole world to become a member of his family. And now he has given us the job of delivering those invitations. Christ says that while we wait for the end to come, we must be giving 
everyone the opportunity to be ready for that day. Every nation needs to know the name of Jesus. So this week, regardless of what you hear on the news, regardless of the wars that rage on and and the storms that surge and the confusion that ensues, be discerning, be ready in defense, be determined, and spread the name of Jesus. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, tell your neighbors. The gospel must be preached to all nations. Third and final question, a little bit more briefly. What happens when we get to the end? We've thought about what life's going to be like between now and then. We've thought about what we need to do while we wait. But what about when we get there? What will happen at the end? Well, did you notice at the end of verse 8, just as Jesus has been describing these earthquakes and the famines, he uses this interesting phrase. He says, these are the beginning of the birth pains. Now, Jesus is not just trying to say that this is going to hurt like contractions. The point that he is making here is about what happens as a result of contractions. So, in a few weeks, when Justine goes into labor, we trust and we pray that it's not just going to be hours of agony without anything to show for it. No, God willing, we will come away from that labor, that, those birth pains, with a baby. Birth pains bring life. And that's exactly the point that Jesus is making here. This world that we're living in, it is corrupted by sin and death and disease and disasters and all of it hurts. It's painful when we're going through all of that. But that's just the birth pains. There is life on the other side. And that life is a new restored, perfected creation without any religious confusion, without any national conflict, with no more humanitarian crises. All of the wrong of this life will be put right. All of the the pain of this life will be relieved. All of the problems of this life will be fixed. Everything will be turned upside down. There is this glorious eternity in store. But the question you need to ask yourselves this morning is, will you experience that? Will you be there? Will you get to enjoy that life? Or are you just going to endure the pain of the here and now with nothing to look forward to? Verse 13 says that the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You will be saved. You will enjoy that eternal life if you stand firm. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you live your life trusting in his promises. Obeying his word. Standing with him. Then you will be saved saved if you don't follow Jesus 
if you don't trust him and you don't live your life for him, then his promises about salvation, his promises about a new perfected life, there's nothing for you there. That doesn't apply to you. So this morning, if you are a Christian, keep going. Keep standing firm. Keep sharing your faith. Because even though this life is chaotic, you will be saved. You will be. But if you're not a Christian, if you're not sure, if you've got doubts and questions, just think for a moment. This morning, you've heard the words of a man who predicted that a temple was going to be destroyed 40 years before it happened. You've heard the words of a man who predicted what this world would be like in the here and now with scary accuracy. You have heard the words of a man who has proved himself trustworthy. Trustworthy. Worthy of your trust. This man says that the only way for you to be saved is if you stand firm on his promises. So won't you trust in him? Won't you call out to him? Won't you ask that he would save you? Because if you do that, if you stand firm on his promises and you trust in him, he tells us the one who stands firm to the end will be saved.